We are live. Great. Um, welcome, everyone, to Connected Learning TV. This is the third webinar of our four-part March 2016 series titled Youth-Led Inquiry, Connection, and Action, Redesigning Civic Education in the Digital Age. And this webinar series was organized by members of the Educating for Participatory Politics Project and also the Council of Youth Research. So if you're watching, please take a moment and share this with your networks. And I'm your host, Erica Hodgen, and I'm the Associate Director of the Civic Engagement Research Group at Mills College. And today I'm talking with some fabulous educators. I'm talking with Sonia Hansra, Kate Rowley, Albert Vasquez, and Christine Ladini, and about specific ways that educators can promote youth, civic, and political engagement in the digital age. So before we dive into our conversation, um, I want to go over a couple of quick details. So to those of you watching live right now, um, we welcome your comments and questions through either the Twitter hashtags Connected Learning and also Digital Civics or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. So we'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. And the webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Project's EducatorInnovator.org. And it's a part of a series of programming related to Letters to the Next President 2.0, which engages and connects young people ages 13 to 18 as they research, write, and make media to voice their opinions on issues that matter to them in the coming election. And so this webinar will be available as a resource on Letters um, to, as in the number, President.org where you can find many other resources and opportunities related to the election, writing, and digital literacies. So before we begin, um, we're going to do some introductions. So first, I wanted to introduce folks to, um, that are watching to our project. And I have a few visuals to share. And so I'm going to um, switch over to some slides. And hopefully, I'll be successful in doing that quickly. Um, so I wanted to share a little bit about our project, which is called um, Educating for Participatory Politics in the Digital Age. So this is part of the Youth um, Participatory Politics Research Network, which is a MacArthur Research Network that has been studying um, youth civic and political development in the digital age for the last number of years. And with that group, um, drawing on this research, we've had a project that has been thinking about how to learn with and also connect our research with educators in the field. And so this project is made up of um, four different teams in three different cities. So we have one team in Los Angeles um, with our media and activism and participatory politics team at USC. And then we also have a team in Oakland that is working with Oakland Unified School District, the National Writing Project, and also our team here at Mills. And then we have two teams in Chicago, so one team um, with the Good Participation Project at Harvard, and they've been working with Facing History and Ourselves teachers, and then also the Black Youth Project in Chicago that's been working with Chicago public school teachers. So we're really excited to talk with um, teachers from three of these projects this evening. But before we do that, I wanted to also explain this term, participatory politics. So what are participatory politics? We um, think of these as interactive peer-based acts where individuals or also groups um, are really seeking to exert their voice and also have influence on issues of public concern. And so these may be you know, a range of social and political and civic issues. Um, we also consider participatory politics the creation and circulation of media in order to inform other people, to promote dialogue, and also give feedback, and also to impact cultural norms and to mobilize um, others. And often it happens without deference to elites or other kinds of like formal institutions. So in this project, there were four different practices um, that fortify practices that we really wanted to focus on and think about. What are the implications for educators when we think about investigation and research? What does it mean to support young people to investigate civic and political issues using digital tools and to assess the credibility of information that they find? And we also wanted to find ways to engage youth in dialogue 
whether that be online or face-to-face, -face, how do they connect with these audiences in different platforms? And then also to think about production and circulation. So how can we support young people to utilize a variety of tools to produce media and also circulate their ideas to their peers and others? And finally, how can we support young people to mobilize others around causes that they find important? So in thinking about these different practices, each of the EPP teams developed um, with teachers different curriculum and also educational resources. And so we have um, just launched a new site. So if you go to our YPP Research Network site, which is ypp.dmlcentral.net, on that website, there is a new section that you'll see in the top menu bar for educators. And this section, if you click on that section, you'll find a lot of resources that we have collected here from these different teams. So you can search through resources by each of these practices or search through resources by each of the teams. And you'll find curriculum developed and used by teachers. You'll also find blog posts written by members of the EPP teams and also by educators about what it's like to do this work um, in the field. So we really encourage you to check out um, this resource. And I'm now I'm going to switch back to um, let's see, I'm going to switch back to go off of screen share because I want to give um, the folks that are on the line um, with us, I want to give you the opportunity to introduce yourselves. So um, if we can have everyone share your name and also um, where you teach and a little bit about the grades or subjects that you teach and then as a way to um, give us a place to sort of start from and get a snapshot of the work that you do in the classroom if you could just briefly describe one example of a civic and political um, engagement project that you've worked on with young people so is it okay if Sonia can we start with you and then we'll go through yeah. hi my name is Sonia and I teach at Met West High School in Oakland and currently I'm teaching ninth grade humanities and something that we're working on right now is uh, we've partnered with the city of Oakland and UC Berkeley um, to give city council members and urban planners feedback on what downtown Oakland should look like. Um, so something my students are doing right now is blogging about their um, project and they're also blogging about their internship um, that they go to twice a week. Great, thank you. Um, and then let's go next to, um, can we have Albert go next? Sure. Hi, my name is uh, Albert Vasquez, and I'm a government and econ teacher in, uh, in Watts, California, at Locke High School. Uh, one of the projects, uh, there's a couple of them that we've been really working on. One of them uh, is a media um, satire project where students take a an issue, a civic issue, whether it's immigration, whether it's healthcare, take that issue, they satirize it in an appropriate way in order to bring more light to that issue, and then try to focus in on an action to to move the public towards. So whether it's like petitions, voting, congressmen, anything like that. Great. And Kate, why don't you go next? So I'm Kate Rowley, and I teach 10th grade English at Locke High School with Albert. And we work in the community of Watts. So um, this year was the 50th anniversary of the um, uprisings in the 1960s. And it was also the 25th anniversary of um, the unfortunate police brutality against Rodney King. And so in response, my students are um, collectively creating art um, and other pieces. And we are hosting a community event in our school library because there aren't any really community libraries that close by um, that kids can walk to. And we're inviting the graduating class is, because several classes graduated um, and just after the 1960s uprisings, um, to kind of come together and start more community conversations about what students would like to see in the neighborhood. Nicole. Great. Thank you. And Christine. Hi, I'm Christine Ladimi. I teach at Bogan High School in Chicago. Um, I teach ninth grade world studies. I teach um, 11th grade IB history along with civics. And I teach 12th grade IB history as well. Um, my juniors and seniors have been working on voter registration guides and persuading other people um, in their communities as, long, as well as in their families to vote. Um, my students have also joined a student voice committee 
So they started working on changes that they wanted made in the school and they've learned the process in which they have to go through to make those changes and now they're talking with the alderman because they want to do a community garden on one of the vacant lots by our school. That's great. Well, these are thank you all for sharing those projects. It's really exciting and I'm excited for us to talk across these because I think there's some wonderful overlaps and also distinctions. So I I know that each of you um, came to our conversation today thinking about a question that you would love to ask each other. And um, you know, it is often it's a wonderful opportunity to talk across these different um, projects, but also different schools and cities where you all are doing innovative and exciting work. And so I would love to give some time to um, dive into our conversation with questions that you have for each other. And so does anyone want to kick us off by starting with a question? For sure, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, um, because everything starts with our theory as educators and our personas as educators. Um, we have an incredible amount of power in our classroom and um, you know, teaching is inherently a political act. I was wondering if there's a text or text that you um, return to or that formed you as an educator um, that you might recommend, because clearly I would like to be like all of you. You are amazing. Um, so any text that you could recommend anyone that wants to be a social justice educator, that would be really helpful. Spring break, I'll read it. Um, I can start. Um, well, for me, it's always been an organization that I've um, been fortunate enough to work with, which is Facing History and Ourselves. Um, they give really, really great professional development throughout the school year as well as during the summer. Um, you can also access some of their resources online. Um, they, they start with the self, so students learn about their identity and um, their identity in relation to each other. And then we look at different case studies throughout history um, and talk about questions like, you know, what is your obligation to the world? Um, how can you be a better upstander? Um, so for me, that's always been a place that I go to if I'm looking for inspiration. Um, and they also provide a lot of support to teachers. Um, so I would highly recommend just maybe exploring their website. Um, you can also, I think there's an office in Los Angeles um, and they, they have a ton of books and videos and they have a speaker series like people will come to your school and talk to the students about their experience. Um, so I can't really speak to a certain text but um, if you're looking for inspiration I would say facing history is a really great one. And I'm going to agree facing history is great we just had them out at our school and they led the teachers in an individual professional development um, as well as they do offer great courses and I have huge books. They did the Armenian Genocide, they did the Holocaust, and they're doing like five more PDs over the summer. So they are always a great resource and they give you planning and then they come out to the school and help you lead if you have questions about it. And so the reason I got up, sorry about that, was I actually had to grab this from my bookshelf because this is a book that was handed to me by a dear colleague who's <clears throat> actually started off in Oakland, Jerrica Coffee. And uh, it's, uh, we, have not, um, we have not been moved resisting racism and militarism in the 21st century. And so I think for me, uh, besides organizations like Facing History, um, it's really about finding a core set of three or four texts, even if it's something to start off initially like uh, People's History by Howard Zinn, and then using those as like a base for what you're going to be doing. Uh, whether it's, I mean, I've seen text like this, which kind of has like a, it's it's a compilation of poems, short essays, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, when you can actually start to fold those in, even if it's like one poem, even if it's like a piece of art, right, and I think when we look at text sets, you have to look at like multiple avenues, and so when you start kind of blending those into your curriculum and start blending them into like your everyday thing, you start to really see the difference right away in, in the way your students kind of engage and in like the quality of the of the things that your students start to produce. I would also add um, rethinking schools. So as a former teacher, I used to read that journal a lot. I still read it. 
um, I find that you know there's such great um, really reflective pieces in thinking about social justice and rethinking how we think about schools and teaching and learning and as you all probably know they have a series of books also um, rethinking uh, reading and writing and they have some on like rethinking popular culture and media and there's a whole series of different ones that I have um, drawn a lot from over the years. And I should just add on, they actually have a really good one now called Rethinking the Environment. And it has things, even like more recent things like fracking and, and things that even like in economics now I'm starting to fold into. And so if you have a chance to pick it up, I don't work for them, but it's pretty cheap. So. <laughs> Great. Well, it looks like too, Sonia, you added one to the chat, putting the movement back into civil rights teaching. So, you know, feel free to keep adding those um, and maybe we can put them onto the, the Twitter chat as well as we go through the conversation. And I'm sure the audience probably has some ideas too, so it could be a great resource. Um, does anyone else want to jump in? Thank you, Kate. That was a great question to start with. Um, anyone else want to jump in with their question for each other? I do. I have a question. Um, so. My students do a lot of buy-in, um, especially with talking about changes in the community in their houses, but then they come back and say, well, my parents said it's not going to matter. So how do you convince your students um, to have buy-in when their parents say that they shouldn't? I think going back to Jerrica Coffey, who taught in Oakland and then came down to Los Angeles to teach with us and now lives in Boston and is a restorative justice coordinator there, um, she was really successful with that um, because she invited the parents to be part of the conversation from the beginning. And so I think that's really important that um, parents are your most important community members. They're your most important stakeholders. Um, without them, the children would not exist, right? Um, and so inviting them from the beginning to help organize, to help decide, um, to help coordinate. And most likely, they're also part of your alumni association because they probably went to that school too. And so I think one of the huge things that we've learned at Locke is that we have to engage parents with the planning in order for anything to really be successful at the end. Um, so that's been really important to us, that the parents are able to come to the meetings, either if it's in the middle of the day or in the evening, or they come to the events, but they also understand what's going to happen at the beginning of the year for the events at the end of the year. It's hard, though. It is hard. Yeah. I think um, part of what it takes is kind of like a shift in mentality, and it's 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 exhausting because your planning has to center around parents, right? And so that means you're scheduling the things that you do um, the actions that you're going to take have to ultimately go through your, the parents, and that's a lot harder, right, because, you know, we're done at 3.30, and we're not really done at 3.30, but the idea that you now have to schedule all your plans around someone else because they may, you know, they may work nights, or and they only have a certain amount of time to come in, and figuring out how you can leverage school resources to try to get those parents in. I think uh, once you're able to do that and once you're able to kind of shift that mindset in some, um, that it's not just, it may not happen between the hours of 8 and 3.30, right, that it may take a 7 o'clock type of assembly or, or whatever it may be uh, to bring that in. I think that can really help, and, and I think all the parents really need is an opportunity, and, and I know I, I've seen it happen sometimes where we've seen, not in general, but I've seen it happen where parents often get excluded without ever being given the opportunity, right? And so um, I think if we can do that, that would really leverage them. I wonder also if students can play a role in sort of sharing what they've learned in your class with their parents. Because um, I've seen examples where our seniors have to do a senior project and it's on an issue that they really care about. Um, and usually they come into the school year with their issue already picked, um, and they do this extensive research project, they have to go out and interview people, and so I've seen it where students are the ones who educate their parents on the issue um, and convince them to care about it. Um, so I wonder if that could be another way um, to, you know, start with the students, make sure that they're buying in and that they're engaged, um, you know, maybe that they don't feel like the issue is relevant to their lives, but um, that could be another way of bringing in parents. 
And I think, too, um, just speaking as a white educator in an urban school where none of my students look like me, it's incredibly important that we're sensitive how we message um, to families because I think as an outsider for a long time in the community, um, coming in and saying, I'm going to do this community action project and it's going to fix things, making sure that the message is, I'm going to fix you, um, but really coming from a place of understanding the community and spending time in the community and participating in the community in which you hope to help or transform or to understand more. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of systems in the United States that bring white educators in for two years and then allow them to leave. And so probably that is, this isn't that parent's first rodeo, right? They've probably seen this show before. And so to come in and say, oh, we're going to do community justice work, trust me, for the next 18 months, I wouldn't engage either, quite frankly. So I think um, how we message, especially as outsiders coming into a community, how we message our intentions and how we really examine the work that we do, making sure that it's student-driven and family-driven, is incredibly important as well. Otherwise, I think it can get lost in translation, even with the best of intentions. Thank you for that question and for you guys' thoughts about it. I think, you know, one other part of it um, that I heard in your question, Christine, too, is just how do you... Um, how do you encourage students to buy into this work too? And I think Sonia, you also were thinking a similar thing. It's just and when you're doing work around civic and political issues, you know, what's your experience of are students bought in? Are they not? I'm sure it's different for different students. And um, how do you handle that as an educator and trying to facilitate and encourage their um, involvement? Yeah, so I this year I'm working with ninth graders, and we, we have sort of a teacher-driven project for them. Um, and then I've worked with seniors where they design their own project, and it lasts for the entire school year. So I've seen sort of both ends of the spectrum. Um, and really this year we're trying to give our ninth graders the skills so that they can build up to designing their own project their senior year. Um, and it's hard. I mean, right now we're working on this project that connects to um, living in the city of Oakland and the students get to, you know, we've gone out and explored, we've done community mapping, and then they get to come up with their own creative ideas for downtown Oakland. And I feel like some of my students are really into it and others are, you know, I've heard things like, um, they're not going to care what we say anyway, so why are we doing this? And to a certain extent, I feel like they're, they're right. You know, like, I'm not really sure if the city of Oakland's going to actually hear what my students have to say. I mean, they're going to hear it, but they might not actually implement it. Um, and then with my seniors, what I've struggled with is they, you know, they come up with this issue that they really care about, they're really passionate about it, and that lasts until November. <laughs> and then we ask them to, you know, implement their project, come up with a proposal, present it, and then they lose their passion, you know, then all of a sudden it becomes this assignment that they have to turn into me for credit, and then it becomes you have to do this to pass your class and to graduate. So I'm also wondering how do you help maintain that, that passion, um, and is it realistic to have a year-long project, um, you know, since in the real world there might not be a year-long project that any of us work on, right? And so I, I'm, I guess I'm curious to hear about um, student-driven work and how that's worked well in your classrooms. I, th I think that really builds in really well to, to some of the struggles that I have because uh, I think what you're getting at is that the issue of efficacy and really getting students to, to buy in long-term to what we're doing because it's really easy to buy in for a unit or to buy in just for the project and then the duration of the project but like you said if it's a year-long thing and uh, I'm gonna be honest I don't know right I think it's one of those things that I'm still trying to figure out I think the best that um, that I've been able to do is to maintain a level of interest uh, over the course of the year by just making it part of the routine 
right? It, it's almost like making it second nature, like this is what we do, right? We don't really question it as much um, in terms of, well, is it really going to make a difference? Because ultimately it just kind of builds into what we do. So when we're looking at uh, right now, I mean, it's, it's an amazing time to be a government teacher because of what's going on with the elections. And so when we're looking at it and we're saying, well, should this, we're looking at the candidates' policies and looking, okay, so if you were going to make a re recommendation, right, what would you do? Um, you know, it's not, well, is this going to make a difference whether we make that recommendation? It's like, no, this is, I think, part of what we're doing because in doing that, you're building the skills to then move forward and take your own action when when that time comes. But in terms of, like, engaging them in a, in a broader project, right, um, like an immigration project, for example, uh, besides, like, a short-term uh solution or a short-term action plan, uh, I'd be interested to hear about that too because I, I don't know and I haven't figured it out yet. I think in some ways you catch students in some projects and you lose them in others, um, but just catching their attention early. We started with a voter registration guide, which I've done before, and some of our students just did not like it. This year with the elections, um, our students really, I talked a lot about fact-checking and verification and um, validating and checking your evidence. And our students really got into it to the point where every day they would come in and say, this is what I learned about this candidate. And the whole class was engaged to the point where no other teacher would stop by my classroom anymore because every time somebody walked in, the students would say, we have to tell you what we learned about this candidate. So it became like the students really wanted to share. So it's just catching their interest in something. And I don't even know sometimes what's going to catch their interest. I wonder also if just having examples of student design projects that have actually um, created change, real change, um, would be helpful, right? So maybe even spending the first month of school just reading about other student projects around the world. Because um, I feel like for my students, there's this disconnect. Like it feels like we're doing this in school for a grade. Um, and I don't think they see that they actually do have the power to, to create actual change outside of the walls of our school. So I wonder if maybe there's a collection of examples out there. Um, I know that the MAP project has collected huge amounts of participatory action research um, and student protest and voice, and they even organize it by um, different interests, um, different ways that people engage. Um, so for example, just visual images. There's an entire section on memes and visual images that have gone viral that brought up really important issues. Um, so, like, the hashtag, I, too, am Harvard. Um, I think it's important to also help students understand that even though it doesn't seem like it right now in the United States, the conversation is sometimes just as important um, as all of the other parts that you engage in in making change. So just getting people to talk to them and engage with them um, and help them become better citizens is, is incredibly important too. And that's like not super sexy, right? They're not like, woo, somebody conversed with me about social issues. But um, if we have 100 students a year that can do that, you know, that potential for change infinitely grows. Um, and so kind of sowing the seeds of like these are all kinds of engagement um, because it's true in Los Angeles um, we send 150 letters to the op-ed of LA Times every year and none of them ever get published because it's a huge city and everybody's sending op-eds to the LA Times every year. Um, but I think to get students engaged in the conversation piece um, we try to give them a lot of choice um, and try to build in choice to each unit of the year as opposed to one cumulative project at the end of the year um, and try to build in action along the way because we have a huge amount of student turnover 
um, and we have a huge amount of absences. And so we want to make sure that everyone has a chance to engage, to have the conversations that really matter, and to become more civically literate in that way. Um, it's hard. It's absolutely hard. Um, yeah, Just, that's why we're here. <laughs> we um, we also had a a digital art teacher who uh, had got funding for a 3D printer, and when he looked at what he wanted to do with his curriculum, right, and and infuse it with social justice and how he'd get students to make a difference in the community, he just took it one item or one product at a time. And he said, okay, he had students imagine a product that's out there and how they could improve on that product to make a difference in the community, whether it was <clears throat> um, crowdsourcing or sharing or uh, making the product free or just adding one small thing. And I think when you take that approach and you look at kind of what we do as teachers, right, and we look at the small little kind of baby steps that we might be able to take, I think that might be a good start. I don't know if that's necessarily the big answer that, that we're necessarily looking for, but in terms of a starting point, that might that might be helpful. I just wanted to add that, um, Kate, you had brought up a resource from the MAP team, and just for folks who may not know how to access that, um, I was mentioning earlier the um, online collection of resources, and so um, through on that site, you can click on the MAP team, and there's a link to their um, resource, which is called By Any Media Necessary. Um, and so that is a really great resource that has all sorts of um, images, media, and things that can really, I think, hone in on examples of either from social movements, from activists. Um, and I think, you know, what you all are touching on is, I think, been, you know, we have seen across the projects is really key for young people to see how are the ways that they're engaging connected to um, broader movements and um, broader sort of actions that are happening in society because it's very hard to sort of set them up for this project that you do in spring semester is really going to change um, sort of equity issues around gender or marriage equality or right or race and so I think that doesn't mean we want to shy away from those issues but I think it is really difficult to sort of scaffold and set them up to have realistic expectations around you know, this does matter, but how does it matter in the broader landscape of things that are happening? Um, and I know that one of our projects in Oakland has been doing um, has been doing a unit on social movements and then having students um, find out about organizations and community leaders that are doing things in their community so that they can maybe potentially connect action to um, broader projects that are happening. And it sounds like some of you are doing similar things to that. I'm wondering, Albert, if your question, if you want to bring in your question at this point, because I feel like it is related to thinking about action and how do we do that. Yeah, and, and I, like I said, it's definitely related because I, I know one of the problems is moving beyond the literacy part, right? Because I think we get caught up in our own classrooms and, and how much our students know. But then what are, I guess, what are some initial first steps that teachers can take? And this could be anybody who is just for the first time trying to get their feet wet uh, that, you know, what are some initial first steps that they can take with their students in order to move their students beyond civic literacy and into actual social or civic actions? And I guess, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking more small little grains rather than, like, you know, big picture things because ultimately we know where we want to get big picture with our students. But, you know, what are those initial things that our students might be able to do with their teachers? Yes, one thought that I had was um, community mapping. Like that's a very easy. So uh, would you be like? Could you? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I think Sonia. I think we're you're we're losing you a little bit. Maybe try one more time, and we'll see if if your connection. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Can you guys hear me? Yeah? Yeah. Um, I was just talking about community mapping. Um, I think that's something that could be easily done. Uh, we just took our ninth graders out not too long ago, and they just did observations. And then when we came back, they did a SWOT analysis. So they looked at strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of their community. Um, another thing I've done in the past is um, 
sort of like online petitions. I mean, that's super easy. You could just do in the classroom, um, change.org, right? That's, that's something you could do. Um, and then I think the other piece is tapping into the online platforms that the students use, right? So a lot of them are on Instagram, not so much Facebook anymore, um, but maybe looking at how recent social movements have been organized through social media. Um, like my students love to be on the phone, right? They're constantly taking videos and um, they're on Instagram, so I feel like maybe even just looking at what they're using and asking them, like how can you use this tool to promote a certain issue or to spread awareness about what you care about. Um, and that could be a simple homework assignment. Anybody else have ideas? Albert, I think your question is great. Like what are some of those first steps or small projects that help um, students sort of begin on this trajectory? Um, I completely agree with the idea of starting with models, and I know a couple people brought this up, this idea that um, really they need to see what it looks like and, and then have a safe space to practice it, um, and whether that be um, looking at movements or looking at individual acts of protest. Um, we usually start with music um, because there's so much out there because it's, it's always been a vehicle for social messages, right? Um, and I think also allowing students to, like you said with community mapping, um, bring their thoughts to the table. I think a lot of curriculum is done to them, um, but trying to ask yourself, you know, where, where are my students allowed to speak to their lived experiences in this activity, in this project? Because if they never get to, when it's time to really hit pater and like do something big, they won't be willing to um, because they won't have the vocabulary or the trust to do that. Um, and so I think that's a continual reflective question for teachers to ask themselves if, am I giving my kids chances to do this every day? Because if I want them to be good at this, they need more chances to do this. Great. Anybody else with small projects that help you get started on the road towards this kind of work? Well, I would just add one from um, some other projects that I have had the chance to observe. And, and I know, Sonia, you brought this up too, but I, I think that um, that blogging can also be a project that you know doesn't require you to leave the classroom, but yet you can connect with audiences um, that are outside of the classroom walls or the school. Um, and so I know that, you know, there are a lot of different literacies and scaffolding involved in that, um, for sure, in going public. But I also think that is a way to connect um, with, you know, folks outside of the classroom and putting your voice out there. My students tweet. Mm, they do great. a lot of, we have our, at our school we have, um, like our hashtag, like at BoganBangle79, so our students tweet that out. Um, and then teachers um, are asked to tweet stuff out in their classroom. So we tweet at least three times a week about the stuff that's happening in our classrooms, and then it really catches on, and the students, you know, learn about posting good stuff and not, you know, other things that you may post. I would love to hear, unless you all have other questions for each other, does anyone have any other questions that have come up that you'd love to ask? So I would love to throw a question out there, which is, you know, I'm sure in our audience um, now, but also folks that might be watching this later, would want to ask a group of fabulous educators, what kinds of supports do you feel like make the most difference for you in doing this kind of work with young people? What kinds of things do you either have as supports that you um, are really, you know, have really made the difference for you, or what kind of supports do you wish you had? Um, I know for me, one of the one of the best supports that uh, I feel like I get from my administrators, even, is like having them look the other way. I know that sounds weird, but just allowing us to kind of experiment in the classroom a little bit without 
kind of that that all seeing eye that's just going to tell you, hey, you know, where's where's this, where's that. Um, I think I've been lucky. Um, Kate and I have been lucky to have that for the most part. And I think once you, uh, not to dissuade anyone who's 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 just starting this, but we've been teaching now for a few years, so we do have that bit of you know, whatever it is, veterans, leeway to just kind of experiment and, you know, we can kind of get away with a little bit more and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, trust me, this is going to work. But just that, you know, just the ability to, I guess, autonomy really um, is is especially now because, um, and I don't know how it is in a lot of other schools, but a lot of our systems are a little bit outdated and, and the expectations and the rules that we have, especially with the way technology is now integrated with our students, and so the ability to kind of move or, I guess, navigate around those has been really, really helpful. Yeah, I think to add on to that, too, um, when we had kind of ambiguous support, so um, I think it was really important that we had the writing project we're part of the UCLA writing project, but there's also a national writing project, and um, states have, you know, a couple or cities have writing projects, and so that's been hugely helpful. Thinking about um, our personas as educators and getting critical support, um, because I think this is really hard to do, and then also think about curriculum and think about all the other things that you have to keep running in your classroom. So the writing project has been. Hugely, hugely helpful. Um, I also think every single project has always gone better as far as social justice and participatory research and action when other teachers on our campus engage in it. Um, So my huge policy is you need a buddy. You have to be able to do this with somebody else. Um, If you're carrying the entire social justice weight of the school on your shoulders, um, you need to start recruiting. Uh, And it's it definitely makes the work more sustainable, and I think it's such important work that it needs to be sustainable, um, absolutely. And so I think engaging in your peers and your colleagues on campus, even just over a cup of coffee, um, is a good start. And then you can always, you know, have a peer group or have a study group together or engage in, you know, local things like the People's Education Movement in Los Angeles that um, brings teachers together. Um, and so I think. Our universities have a lot of support for us, and then also our peers have a lot of support that we honestly desperately need to be sustainable. For me, it's been chaperones and mentors. Um, So even doing the community mapping project, I was really lucky to have this partnership with UC Berkeley. Um, So we had grad students who work, um, who are studying urban planning, come out and help us with the community mapping. They've talked to my students about urban planning in general. Um, And then the second piece is this year with my blogging, um, we blog every Friday and um, through the work that I'm doing um, with um, OUSD, I've partnered with another teacher who has her students um, respond to my students. Um, So that's been really helpful because otherwise I feel like my students feel like the blogging pointless. so on Fridays, they'll read what the other students have commented. Um, and that just gives them an audience. Um, and you know, those students might ask questions or they might comment on my students' work. Um, so just having other people um, outside of me has been really helpful, you know, even if it's just a chaperone or um, someone coming in to do a practice interview, things like that have been really, really helpful. That's great. Thank you all. Christine, anything you want to add about supports that you found helpful in Chicago? Um, I really like, I said facing history again, but my principle has always been, you know, whatever you want to try, go ahead. You know, guest speakers, um, community members, people that have jobs. Like, she has just said okay to everything, and I think that's been great because there's never been anything that's been like, no, you can't do it, or there's no roadblocks. So, as long as you can say how the kids will react to it and what they'll learn, it's been a go ahead. So that's just made my job so much easier. That's great. 
Well, I'd love to, we're getting close to time, but I would love to see if, um, some of you have sort of touched on this, but I would love to see if any of you have any sort of like parting words of wisdom for teachers who may want to get into civic and political work with their students, but also on the digital side. So, you know, do you have any advice for teachers um, and educators and informal spaces around civic and political work and also um, the digital work with young people? Yeah, I can start. Um, so I don't consider myself very tech savvy. <laughs> Um, so I tried blogging with my students last year for the first time and, um, you know, sort of an epic fail. Um, like I had some huge tech issues um, and, you know, part of me wanted to like not do it because I was really nervous. I was like, it's going to be a waste of class time. But luckily I had seniors and, you know, seniors can be very forgiving. Um, so I, I think there was like 30 minutes that went by where I was trying to like figure something out and they just kind of sat there and like, I chatted with each other. Um, and then so this year with the ninth graders, um, I was nervous again. So I was like, okay, I can't do this without it being successful because I'm going to lose them. Um, and so I worked really closely with another teacher who's been blogging for years with her students. Um, and so I made sure that I had everything ready um, and I tested it out. I pretended I was a student to make sure it worked. Um, so I guess my advice would be to take a risk. Um, like if you're not if you don't feel comfortable doing something, your students won't as well. Um, so it's good to kind of step out of your comfort zone. Um, you know, and now I feel more comfortable trying other avenues um, related to technology. And so if I hadn't done that, I feel like, um, you know, I would be stuck. Like I, I wouldn't know how to, what other avenue I could take. So I would say definitely reach out to other people in the building because you know, there's the wealth of resources at every school. Um, so, yeah, take take a risk. Um, I would say that I'm somewhat tech-savvy, yet I, I think I'm a lot more tech-savvy than I really am, actually. And so, um, you know, our students know an incredible amount. And so leveraging them, for these projects is an amazing thing that you can do. I would say don't be afraid to show like that type of weakness in front of your students because it's not weakness. It's actually a strength. And I think the times that I saw my students most bought into the projects, whether it was recording elements, um, whether it was actual like web design elements that we did in projects, the time that they were most invested was when they were kind of helping me learn it alongside with them. And so, you know, it really allowed them and it, it, to take ownership of it and to really move it away from it being completely teacher-centered because, you know, I mean, even that in itself, uh, one of the things that we've been finding a lot is that just because our students are born into technology, using technology in an academic way is much different. And so giving them the opportunity to actually just sit there and work, right, and figure something out and in the process learn and develop that. Um, I would say don't, you know, just as was just said by Sonia, don't be afraid to kind of waste a little bit of time because it's not really wasted time. And so, yeah, if your kids are squirrely, maybe have a plan B, you know, because if something does go horribly wrong and, you know, yeah, seniors will sit there for 30 minutes, but ninth and 10th graders may not. So uh, just have that plan B, but really just go for it, you know, and, and it's, it's really worth it in the end. I'm going to totally agree with Albert. Um, I'm not a tech person that I would like to be. Um, this is our second year in my school where we're one-to-one -one Chromebook, so every student has a Chromebook. And there are definitely students that will come up and lead technology and say, no, this is how you do it. So just utilize those students. And when you utilize them, you're also engaging them and you're making them feel more confident. Um, and then they're growing in other areas. Um, there's always going to be a reason not to do it. The tech, the pacing plan, the whatever, the man. Um, but I think what's really important is that every time you hear those things in your head, um, you 
look around them to what's really best for your students. Because um, there's always going to be someone who has a reason not to have their students engage with the outside world or not have students use tech or not engage students in um, social justice work. But we know that we really need all of these things and we know that our society needs all these things and really that our students need all these things um, to be the most successful adults possible. Um, so I think be wary of people that make excuses why they can't. And, and then when you look around to your peers and somebody's like, I'll try that, sure. Like be friends with that person um, because most likely they'll be the person that you need to springboard ideas off and stuff like that. I think also um, be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, you, you also need curriculum that makes sense for your students, that is humanizing, that is um, important. Um, and so just giving them an iPad and being like, roll with it, make something beautiful. Like there's a lot of planning that goes behind it. Um, and so just make sure that that's in place as well. But there's a ton of people who are engaged in this work as well and invested in that work as well. And so we're all here to support you. That's why we're here, support you so you can make it happen. Thank you all so much for sharing all of that fabulous advice. I'm so glad this is recorded <laughs> so people can go back and watch this. Um, so I want to just, we're going to wrap up in a few moments, but just want to see if anyone has any final thoughts or comments that you haven't had a chance to say yet, but you would love to, to add in as we wrap up. Oh, okay. So again, I just want to thank you all so much for taking the time and but also to share your questions and your thinking and the different issues that you're grappling with. Um, you know, we know that this work is so hard and so critical. So I really appreciate you all for um, ha engaging in this conversation with each other and also sharing your insights. Um, so this will wrap up our third webinar um, for our series in March. And we, um, but please, you know, continue to engage on Twitter. We want to continue to think about this overall, um, you know, question of how do we redesign civic education for the digital age. So please keep the conversation going through the hashtags um, connected learning and also digital civics. And there'll also be a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv. And there'll be other curated content from the webinar on the way. So please, you know, keep checking back on that site. And if you found this conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming webinars, you can also look on Connected Learning TV, um, which is now being produced by the National Writing Project's Educator Innovator. So you can also visit educatorinnovator.org and sign up for their email newsletter. And as we mentioned earlier in the call, there are many resources um, developed by some of the educators here tonight, but also other educators that we've worked with across these different cities that is on the Educating for Participatory Politics um, collection of resources. So you can find that through ypp.dmlcentral.net. So um, we hope that folks will join us next Thursday at the same time for our final webinar, which will be a conversation with folks from the Educating for Participatory Politics project and then also folks from the Council of Youth Research. So it'll be a really great conversation talking across these different projects and thinking together about similarities and distinctions in our work. And I want to thank everyone again. This has been a fabulous conversation and have a wonderful night. <laughs>